Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, To Your Offspring I Will Give This Land, A Brief History of the Jews and Israel. The date, May 2021st, and my name, Belisarius Avis. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis chapter 15, verse 38. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 15. In Thomas Cahill's magisterial Hinges of History series, in which he encapsulates the history of the West, period by period, his entire pantheon begins in his book, The Gifts of the Jews. Cahill starts the book with the tale of Gilgamesh, a literary figure of the Sumerians whose story was captured some 4,200 years ago. Cahill's point is that the Mesopotamia of Gilgamesh times, and indeed that of neighboring Egypt, was one of a cyclical existence. It was not just that a peasant would toil the land or view his world similar to that of his grandfather, but rather like those who lived a thousand years before his time. Their life was one of an unending cycle of birth, life, and death. And in this cycle, the power of the individual to affect time, to break this wheel, is inconceivable, is beyond their scope. But in Cahill's brilliant hypothesis, the Jews of Abraham's time, some 3,800 years ago, saw the world differently, and it is that difference that permeates the way we view our world today. Quote, In a cyclical world, there are neither beginnings nor ends, but for us, time had a beginning, whether it was the first words in the book of Genesis, when in the beginning God created heaven and earth, or the Big Bang Theory of Modern Science, a concept that would not have been possible without the Jews. Time, which had a beginning, must also have an end. What will it be? In the Torah, we learn that God is working his purposes in history and will affect its end. But in the prophets, we learn that our choices will also affect this end, that our inner disposition toward our fellow human beings will make an enormous difference in the way this end appears to us, unquote. It is the basis of this individual control, this individual agency that Cahill refers to, that we would have the power to shape our own destiny. And that destiny, that agency, that individual control sits within two core tenets of our society today. Both capitalism and conservatism both involve a single word, and that word is choice. Earlier, Cale notes that Abraham, or Avram in his earlier days, broke the wheel by leading his tribe from Sumer to a place that God has designated. Quote, So, Weyelakai, Abraham, or Avram went. Two of the boldest words in all literature. They signaled a complete departure from everything that had gone before in the long evolution of culture and sensibility. Out of Sumer, civilized repository of the predictable, 
comes a man who does not know where he's going, but goes forth into the wilderness under the prompting of his God. Out of mortal imagination comes the dream of something new, of something better, something yet to happen, something in the future. Unquote. Cahill then notes the evolution of the covenant of God that is established with Abraham and his descendants. Abraham led a clan or family out of Sumer into Canaan. His son Isaac would lead a tribe, and his son Jacob would lead a nation and personally take on Israel's name. At the heart of the American dream is this striving, this belief that our children will inherit a better world than the one in which we live. Inconceivable for Sumerians and Egyptians of the ancient world, but in the marrow of the bones of a Jew and Western civilization. Everything from our economy to our politics to a simple concept such as competition traces its roots back to the desert along the Jordan River. The actual preservation of Judaism, of being a Jew, is arguably the most daunting of any people in the history of the world. Not one generation after Jacob, the Jews found succor in Egypt with the patriarch Joseph occupying a prominent post, only later to see generations of Jews enslaved by their once gracious hosts. Almost every American knows what comes next, whether it be Burt Lancaster, Christian Bale, the voice of Al Kimmler, and most of all, Charlton Heston. We know that Moses led his people out of bondage and finally claimed the patrimony promised by the covenant with God. It is hard to know whether Moses himself existed, but if he did, it would have been around 3,300 years ago or about 500 years after Abraham. What we do know and have today is the Mosaic Code, or better known as the Ten Commandments. Now, I've already done an entire podcast, which I would encourage you to check out. It's, it's on the Buzzsprout site along with this one. And I've already done that podcast on the Hammurabi and Mosaic Code, so I will not belabor the point here. But suffice it to say that the concept of morality, of avoidance of a wrong act, not due to a penalty, but because it is simply wrong, is another gift of the Jews. One of the more interesting aspects about Jewish history, and part of the Palestinian issue of today, is how much time the Jews actually spent outside of what is today modern Israel, or, as I will now use, the common term Palestine to designate the entire region. There was the movement under Joseph initially voluntarily to Egypt, and only later did they need to free themselves. But it was after this period, after Moses and Joshua, that the final actual Jewish state was built sometime around 1000 BCE. And very quickly, after three kings, according to the Bible, there was Saul, David, and Solomon. But then it was only to fracture into two kingdoms in the second half of the 9th century BC. And this dual kingship of Judah and Israel lasted roughly to around 700 BCE when the Assyrian Empire conquered the entire region. And thus began an unending period of living under other empires that was to end with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE and 73. Military, political, and geographical historians can instantly note two salient things about the region. The first is how indefensible it is, and second, it sat between two of the four river valleys where civilization began. 
Now the Indus and Yellow Rivers are far from each other, but the Euphrates and Tigris and the Nile Valley are close enough for armies to traverse continuously. And the fact that there was no defendable rivers such as the Rhine or the Danube, or mountain ranges such as the Alps or Carpathians to cross, and no vast deserts such as the Sahara and Arabian to guard a frontier meant that Israel was going to be a highway of empire. Upon the fall of the Assyrians, a revived Egypt moved into Palestine only to lose it to the second Babylonian empire. In 587, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had captured Jerusalem and deported the Jewish elite to Mesopotamia. This period is called exile or Gola. However, his successor, Nabonidus, was defeated by the Persian king Cyrus the Great sometime around 539 BCE. Cyrus allowed the exiled Jews to return home, but many of them preferred to stay in wealthy Babylonia and refused to go home. Cyrus's relative tolerance was the beginning of the Jewish community of Iraq and Iran, which existed for millennia until very recently. For many historians, this was the beginning of the Jewish diaspora or dispersion. The Persians were to rule the Near East until Alexander of Macedon's conquests in the early 300s BCE. Upon Alexander's death, Palestine became, well, what was essentially an imperial chew toy between the Seleucid Empire and Ptolemaic Egypt. When the Seleucids were in the ascendancy, they encountered a highly successful Jewish revolt led by the Maccabees. The Maccabees were a priestly family of Jews who organized that successful rebellion specifically against Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV and re-consecrated the defile, Temple of Jerusalem. The final conquest of ancient Israel began with the Romans in the first century BCE when Pompey the Great visited Jerusalem. And sometime around 33 CE, a religious zealot of Nazareth was executed by the Romans at the instigation of a religious sect called the Pharisees. The final death knell of the Jews in Palestine, and really we wouldn't see very many of them until the late 19th century CE, began with a series of revolts in 66 CE. And in 70 CE and in 73 CE, the Jewish state comes to an end. The Romans began to actively drive Jews from their homes that they had lived in for over a millennium. But as noted, the Jewish diaspora had begun long before the Romans had even dreamed of Judea. The Romans then destroyed Jerusalem itself, annexed Judea as a Roman province, and systematically drove the Jews from Palestine. After 73 CE, Hebrew history would only be the diaspora history as the Jews, and their worldview spread over Africa, Asia, and Europe. Persecutions of Jews, whether by Christians or later Muslims, have always been a part of Jewish history. Some of this is due to the mistaken belief that Jews killed Jesus. Now, the real-life Jesus was undoubtedly a Jew himself, and it is debatable whether another subset of the Pharisees would have killed him. It is known that fear of Roman reprisals was a driving force of the Pharisees, and that it was undoubtedly the Romans who directly murdered him. We know this because crucifixion was a uniquely Roman answer to keep subject people and slaves in line. Ninety years before Jesus' death, the Roman Marcus Crassus crucified 6,000 members of the Spartacus slave revolt. 
In typical brutal efficiency, crucifixion was an effective Roman deterrent so heinous that the actual depiction of Jesus' crucifixion only occurred around 500 CE. In other words, only people who had never actually seen a crucifixion could contemplate portraying one. It was that bad. Another reason for Jewish animosity is something that our own Bernie Sanders could well understand, hatred of bankers. Because in many Christian European enclaves, the lending of money at interest was considered a sin, coupled with a lack of landowning rights for Jews, they naturally gravitated towards the few professions open to them. But as noted, not many like the banker. In the Conversation magazine, author Gervais Phillips attempts to get at additional reasons. Quote, Anti-Semitism has been called history's oldest hatred and has shown itself to be remarkably adaptable. It is carved from and sustained by powerful precedents and inherited stereotypes, but it is also taking on variant forms to reflect the contingent fears and anxieties of an ever-changing world. Understood this way, it is the modern manifestation of an ancient prejudice, one which some scholars believe stretches back to antiquity and medieval times, unquote. As Philip notes, and as we have seen from previous Roman history, the roots of anti-Semitism run very deep. Finding examples of hostility towards Jews in classical sources is not difficult. The politician and lawyer Cicero once reminded a jury of, quote, the odium of Jewish gold, unquote, and how they, quote, stick together, unquote, and are influential in informal assemblies. The Roman historian Tacitus was contemptuous of base and abominable Jewish customs and was deeply disturbed by his compatriots who had renounced their ancestral gods and converted to Judaism. The Roman poet and satirist Juvenal shared his disgust of the behavior of converts to Judaism besides denouncing the Jews generally as drunken and rowdy. And this tradition manifested itself hard in medieval times. In 1290, King Edward I of England, also known as Longshanks, issued an edict expelling all Jews from England. Lasting for the rest of the Middle Ages, it would be over 350 years until it was formally overturned in 1656. The edict was not an isolated incident, but the culmination of more than 200 years of conflict about the concept of usury or the lending of money at interest, something that is forbidden to Christians. Since Jews could not own land outright, but could lend money, as I've noted before, they were prominent bankers of this period. But medieval governments, like a particular 21st century republic I could name, were perpetually in debt. So an excellent way to squeeze ready cash was to borrow and then simply expel the banker when the tab came due. As noted on the History Information site, quote, while anti-Semitism was widespread in Europe, medieval England was particularly anti-Semitic. An image of the Jew as a diabolical figure who hated Christ started to become widespread, and anti-Semitic myths such as the wandering Jew and ritual murders originated and spread throughout England, Scotland, and Wales. Jews were said to hunt for children, to murder before Passover so they could use their blood to make matzah, 
Anti-Semitism on several occasions sparked riots where many Jews were murdered, most famously in 1190, when over a hundred Jews were massacred in the city of York. Unquote. In these COVID times, thoughts of the Black Death of Europe, the bubonic plague that wiped out nearly one-third of the European population, seem to be in a lot of people's minds. One of the myths emanating from the Black Death was that it led to the massacres of the Jews in the Rhineland because, or so it was believed, the Christians blamed them for the pandemic. One article published in the National Institutes of Health even argues these persecutions may have predated the plague. Far from acts of plague-terrified frenzy mobs, the massacres were the carefully planned and executed work of the Christian local governments. Before the widespread outbreak of the Black Death in 1348, Jews in Western Europe were subjected to violent episodes. In fact, the first crusade of 1096, you know the crusades, the things that Muslims uh, rail against today, actually began with attacks on Jews who were seen as the enemies of Christ as much as the Turkish Seljuks who controlled the Holy Land. In the 12th and 13th centuries, authorities ordered the destruction of books of Talmud because they were thought to contain secret instructions. And it was not a coincidence that a king such as Edward I would exclude Jews from England and that in a different part of Europe, more Jews would be persecuted. What we do know is, is that during the time of the Black Death, tens of thousands of Jews in the Rhineland were massacred. About 150 years after the Black Death, the Spanish, having reconquered the Iberian Peninsula from the Islamic Moors, performed their own Jewish persecutions. According to Christopher Columbus's diary, no less a source than the explorer, quote, in the same month in which their majesties, Ferdinand and Isabella, issued the edict that all Jews should be driven out of the kingdom and its territories. In the same month, they gave me the order to undertake with sufficient men my expedition of discovery to the Indies. The expulsion, issued as is noted in 1492, affected over 200,000 Jews. Of these, tens of thousands perished trying to reach new lands. Writing for the City University of New York website, SUM, author Beth Harpez described the Russian pogroms against the Jews in the 1800s. Murderous rampages against Jews, known as pogroms, were central to the Jewish experience in Russia and its borderlands in the 19th and early 20th centuries. According to Professor Elisa Bemporard, these waves of violence resulted in at least 150,000 Jews being murdered and a third of Jewish women in the region raped. It was around the time of these pogroms that Zionism came into the lexicon. According to writer Zach Bochep, writing for Vox, quote, Jews often trace their nationhood back to the biblical kingdoms of David and Solomon, circa 950 BCE. Modern Zionism, building on the long-standing Jewish yearning for a return to Zion, began in the 19th century, right about the time that nationalism started to rise in Europe. A secular Austrian Jewish journalist, Theodore Herzl, was the first to turn rumblings of Jewish nationalism into an international movement around 1896. Unquote. Herzl witnessed brutal European anti-Semitism 
firsthand and became convinced the Jewish people would never survive outside of a country of their own. He wrote essays and organized meetings that spurred mass Jewish emigration from Europe to Israel-Palestine. Before Herzl, about 20,000 Jews lived there. By the time Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany, the number was nearly eight times greater. And obviously, had not Herzl and Zionism existed, the horrors of the Holocaust, Hitler's final solution to eliminate the Jews from the face of the earth, would have been worse, though that is hard to imagine. And now we come to the root of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, World War I saw an even more significant realignment of world power than the bloodier World War II. An even more murderous Bolshevik regime replaced Tsarist Russia. The German Empire was dismantled, with the Kaiser going into permanent exile. And we know what happened after World War I in that country. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire was divided, as much as possible, into its ethnicities. But what is germane for this story was the fourth empire to be destroyed. For over 400 years, the Ottomans had held sway over Palestine, eliminating any dreams of Palestinian self-governance. But by the late 19th century, this empire, which had once struck fear into the hearts of Christian rulers from Vienna to Madrid, was now termed the sick man of Europe. Upon its dissolution after World War I, Syria and Palestine were put under the control of Britain and France. But even before that war's end, the Balfour Declaration was issued. The British government in 1917 announced support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Now, the declaration was contained in a letter dated November 2nd, 1917 from the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish community for transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. The text of the declaration was published in the press on November 9th, 1917. And on January 3rd, 1919, the future president of the World Zionist Organization, K.M. Wiesman, and King Faisal I of Iraq signed the Faisal-Wiesman Agreement. Faisal provisionally accepted the Balfour Declaration conditional on the fulfillment of British wartime promises of Palestine being included in the area of Arab independence. At the 1919 Paris press conference and Treaty of Versailles, the Ottoman Empire, now Turkey, acknowledged the loss of its Middle East regime. The era between the world wars saw many conflicts already beginning between the new Jewish settlers and the Palestinians. An area of extraordinary contention was the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, a place claimed by both Judaism and Islam as a holy place. The British and French empires, weakened by World War I, could no longer project power after World War II. And thus, the decision was made to pull out of the region, to grant the region self-government. But in the intervening years, from the destruction of the Ottomans to post-World War II, tens of thousands of Jews had arrived in the area, and especially after the horrors of the Holocaust, a Jewish state was sanctioned, based again on the Balfour Declaration. Here's the text from the United Nations on this subject. Quote, 
In Chapter 6 of the report of September 3, 1947, the majority of the committee proposed recommendations for consideration by the General Assembly that Palestine, within its present borders, following a transitional period of two years from September 1, 1947, shall be constituted into an independent Arab state, an independent Jewish state, and the city of Jerusalem. Unquote. So here it is, from the very beginning, a two-state solution. Now, why not just one state? Why not just Palestine, right? Well, two things. First off, the aforementioned Holocaust, and also that most of the delegates to the General Assembly also understood, especially the Americans, that Palestinians and many other Arab constituencies actually collaborated with the Nazis in World War II. After all, they had a common enemy. Now, a quick word about the Holocaust before we get into the actual founding of the Jewish nation. About five years ago, I went to Budapest, and two sights struck me. The first was the Shoes on the Danube Bank, a memorial erected on April 16, 2005 in Budapest, Hungary. Conceived by film director Kayan Toge, he created it and the east bank of the Danube River with the sculptor Gaila Poor to honor the Jews who were massacred by fascist Hungarian militia belonging to the Arrow Cross Party during the Second World War. The second place that I visited was the Dahani Street Synagogue. It is one of the largest in Europe. But what is striking is the emptiness of the place. During World War II, over 400,000 Hungarian Jews were murdered, leaving about 75,000 in the nation today. And as an aside, given the mentality of current Hungarian strongman Viktor Orban, I would confess concern over the fate even of this diminished community in 2021. And now back to the history. Under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion, Herzl's dream was realized in 1948 with the official declaration of the State of Israel. And as noted, there was the attempt at a two-state solution. And not surprisingly, one of the first countries to acknowledge the new Israel was the United States. Now, the United States support for this kind of homeland for the Jews was not something that just started with that president in 1948, Harry S. Truman, but went back to many previous presidents. John Quincy Adams said, I believe in the rebuilding of Judea as an independent nation. Abraham Lincoln himself believed of the Jews that they should be restored to their national home in Palestine. President Calvin Coolidge expressed his, quote, sympathy with the deep and intense longing which finds such fine expression in the Jewish national homeland in Palestine, unquote. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, the American people, ever zealous in the cause of human freedom, have watched with sympathetic interest the effort of the Jews to renew in Palestine the ties of their ancient homeland and to reestablish Jewish culture in the place where for centuries it flourished and whence it was carried to the far corners of the world. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, the keystone of contemporary reconstruction activities in the Jewish homeland. And as noted, the president of the time, Harry S. Truman said, I had faith in Israel before it was established. I have faith in it now. So this is the end of this podcast. This is part one 
of A Brief History of the Jews and Israel. Part 2 will take all of the period from 1948 up until our present day. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening to the Conservative Historian Podcast. 